Our text today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us today that we might receive the word that you are communicating to us today. Help me to be an able, articulate messenger of it. Father, give me clarity of thought. Uh, correct anything in me that might be incorrect. Uh, help us to forget anything that's not helpful today, but to remember what is helpful and what is true and what is right. So Father, guide us through this study of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, if you've been to the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian, you've seen as you walk in the main hall, as you go through the entrance, there is a 12-ton marble statue of George Washington seated on a throne. And he looks like, very much looks like a, a, a Greek god. He looks like Zeus sitting on his throne. He's bare-chested. So he's ripped, you know, he looks like a bodybuilder. He's cut, he's got a robe draped around his waist and slung over one arm. His, his right hand is pointed up and his left hand is holding a sheathed sword in his lap. And this is not a modern piece in the sense that it was done in the 20th century. This was carved in 1832. And you would probably recognize it if you saw it. You, you've probably seen it in a textbook or seen a picture somewhere. But the last time we visited, it, it, and you, you walk in the hall, and it's so disproportionately com comedic. It's George Washington, which you've ever read about him. He was a great guy. I like George Washington, but he wasn't, he wasn't this Greek god. It's so out of proportion that, that, that I couldn't help but laugh at the hubris of it all when I saw it. And George would probably laugh too if he saw it, if he weren't crying out of embarrassment. But looking at this thing, just so out of proportion, so full of hubris, I thought, you know what, for me, that pretty much sums up uh, American civil religion. We, we worship these distortions of history, these distorted characters. Um, it's one thing to give thanks. I do give thanks. I give thanks for men like George Washington. I, I give God thanks for them. It's one thing to give thanks for them. It's a very different thing to worship them and to turn them into these idols. That, that statue, that carving is a cartoon of George Washington. It's a caricature. It's a, it's a grotesque idol. And it's, it's amazing that even in our very modern 
enlightened, evolved generation, we still don't hesitate to turn men into gods. We, we haven't shucked the idolatry of the benighted world behind us. We still turn men into gods. We are still enthralled by power. We still bow at the altars of influence, status, fame, money, comfort, and we pay homage to the saints and martyrs of our national religion. Despite the fact that has been proven and demonstrated to us time and time again that all of our modern gods, all of them are powerless to save us. All of our modern gods cannot protect us. They cannot make us happy. They have been repeatedly exposed as ineffective and effete and feckless when it comes to dealing with even the simplest challenges, and yet men continue to put their faith in them and are continue to be awed by their majesty and their glory. It was the same tendency that Paul found in the church at Corinth. And so he writes to exhort them to stop overestimating worldly wisdom and worldly definitions of strength and importance and to begin rightly estimating the power of the gospel, the power of the cross. For both the Jew and the Greek, there was this temptation to not think very highly of Jesus. For the Jews, Jesus was a failed prophet at best. He was hung on a tree and therefore he was, he was cursed, cursed of God. For the Greek, who was Jesus? Well, he was this barbarian from a backwater province of the Roman Empire, and he really didn't amount to much either for them. So both Jew and Greek in the church had to have, they must have had, their values flipped so that they could really begin to see what's valuable in the world and what things are worthless. So they exalt human might and human wisdom and human glory and at the same time despise Jesus. They think Jesus is worthless. And so Paul writes to them to flip that around. You need to value Jesus and diminish your trust in worldly wisdom. So as we study the section of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, we'll see three main points as we work through this. He's, he's trying to make these things clear. First of all, he's going to say that the gospel utterly contradicts and undermines the worldly wisdom that the Corinthians admire so much. They are enthralled with earthly wisdom, with worldly wisdom, and the gospel subverts that. So they're going to have to decide between the two. Are they going to stick with the worldly wisdom or are they going to go with the gospel? Secondly, the Corinthians have an experience of receiving the gospel and understand that as, as this gospel has worked its way into their lives and homes, that they are the recipients of God's grace and then have no basis for any kind of pride, any of this hubris that's in the culture around them. So he undermines their pride. And thirdly, Paul reminds them that, you know, when I was with you and I was teaching, I never relied on human wisdom. I never, I never went back to that. I never pulled from that. I never, I never relied on human wisdom and I didn't teach it to you. I only taught you the cross, only the message of the cross. And it's that message that you must embrace and teach others as well. Don't mix the cross with this worldly religion. Don't mix it with, with the culture. Rather, uh, and, and don't be embarrassed of the cross. Rather, preach 
preach the cross. So let's go through this line by line. I don't know how else to, to uh, do this section, and especially as we get into this letter. Um, I'm going to read a verse and make a few comments, and I may read a couple of verses at a time and make, make a few comments, but let's, let's hear what the apostle writes to this church verse by verse. I started here in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The, the word of the cross, in some of our translations it says the message of the cross. A strict translation would say the word of the cross. The word of the cross is how Paul summarizes his entire body of teaching and the gospel itself. The word of the cross. This is what I bring to you. Throughout history, there have been attempts to distort the gospel and to make the gospel, to make the Christian message about anything but the suffering and the death of Jesus on behalf of his people. Uh, so so we've, we pull it away from this stuff about suffering and sacrifice, and we want to make it about your personal wealth or your personal status or your personal comfort, or your own glory or gain. We, we manipulate and twist the gospel to make it about something other than the cross. And we've been trying to do this for about 2,000 years now. But Paul writes and reminds us, no, stop. The cross is the first thing. It is the central thing. It is the only thing. It is the message. If you are preaching a message that contradicts what happens on the cross, your message is absolutely and utterly false and bankrupt. It is only the cross. The core of the gospel is that we have a Savior who died for us and who calls us to die for each other and for the world. If you stray from that, you're, you're off the path. And this is what Paul calls us back to. Now, the gospel that, he says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, those who are perishing, thinks that's, they, they think that's the stupidest thing in the world. What are you talking about? A cross, a, a, a savior, some kind of substitution, some kind of sacrifice? That's ridiculous. It's foolishness to the ones who are perishing, and they're perishing because they don't know they're perishing. They're perishing because they don't think anything's wrong. They don't have any concept of their own desperate need of redemption. And it's very possible that somebody within the sound of my voice right now thinks, when I say you need a savior, you think saved from what? When I say there is such a thing as sin, you say, what is sin? Is that just somebody's opinion about something so I should feel guilty about something? No, there, there, are, uh, there, there is a need for a savior because of the impact that sin has, because of the uh, inworking and and and. Uh, and effects of sin in our lives and in the world. And there is something uh, to be saved from. And so, uh, but the reason that people are so enamored with Darwinianism and relativism, the reason they devalue life and the reason they murder the innocent and the reason we practice thievery and fornication and sodomy and all these other things is because we don't think that there's a God who's going to hold us accountable for our sin. We have no sense that there is anything that we're trapped in that we must be saved from. And they have no sense that there is any other thing than what we experience. So what a Christian calls rebellion against a holy and almighty creator 
they call, well, that's just Tuesday afternoon. I mean, that's just what I do all the time. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're perishing because they don't know they're perishing. They're perishing because they don't have a definition of sin or Savior. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right there is the dividing line that separates all of humanity those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The, the dividing line of, of all humanity doesn't run through the haves and the have-nots. It doesn't run through those who are in power and those who don't have power. It doesn't run between the famous and the non-famous. The line bisects only. Uh, Paul divides humanity into those who are perishing and who think that the cross is a dumb idea and those who are being saved for whom that same cross is the power of God. Now he quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The Corinthians are Greeks for the most part. Even the Jewish members of the Corinthian church have been heavily influenced by Greek culture. And so the Corinthians as Greeks are intensely passionate about wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. Wisdom, Sophia, wisdom is the, is the pursuit. Herodotus, the Greek historian, he wrote, all Greeks are zealous for every kind of Sophia, every kind of wisdom. In their culture, eloquence and, and the pursuit of Sophia, the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of learning secured for them status and influence like nothing else could. Nothing else could secure this for you like the pursuit of wisdom. They were exceedingly concerned for their reputations and maintaining a good reputation meant being well-versed in wisdom. Nobody wanted to be accused of believing something that was unpopular or out of fashion. And so they had their talking points and they had their accepted beliefs that would help them conform to respectable society. And so it appears that the Corinthian Christians are falling into that snare of trying to synthesize their faith in Jesus with Greek philosophy and Greek morality. And because they don't want to lose their standing, they don't want to lose their reputation or their status over this Christian faith that was so offensive to the Greek mind, Paul has to say to them as he quotes Isaiah, he said, you, you want the gospel to be another Sophia. You want it to be another wisdom. You want it to be a, another uh, form of teaching, worldly wisdom, but it isn't anything like the wisdom of the world. The gospel is the message of the crucified Savior. No earthly system would ever come up with anything like that at all. In fact, all of these human philosophies oppose the gospel, and because they oppose the gospel, and because they oppose the king who died for his people, they all stand under judgment. God is going to upend every one of them and openly display their falsehoods and their emptiness. Those who hold on to them are all bent, they're broken, and they need redemption. These systems and those who hold to them cannot save because they themselves are in need of a savior. They cannot think or reason their way out of this mess. They need a deliverer from the outside. And so that's why he quotes Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. It's all under judgment. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. In verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom 
of this world. Paul starts calling them out. Hey, philosophers, listen to me. Where's, where's a wise Greek philosopher? Where's the most studious scribe? Who is the best debater of the day? Who is the greatest writer? Let them show themselves. And Paul says, I'll show you what God has done. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He hasn't simply dismissed it. He hasn't, he hasn't disregarded it. God hasn't argued it out of existence to prove that it's foolish. He has made it foolish through the cross. He has exposed it through the cross. The cross undermines and subverts and exposes all worldly systems of belief and thought and practice. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So he's saying that the world did not know God through wisdom. Paul's not saying that unbelievers don't know anything. He's not saying that unbelievers are not able to understand any kind of truth. Pagans do have certain wisdom and knowledge and skill in things that we don't have at all. There, there are, there's knowledge in the world that they have that we don't have. But as hard as they try to climb the heights of wisdom, they still don't know God and the wisdom such as it is doesn't bring them one step closer to God. All of their pursuits turn up empty. Uh, because their reason, their wisdom, is not the mediator between mankind and the Father. You, you can't reason your way into the, the kingdom of heaven uh, only, by, only by human reason. If a man has reason alone and purposely ignores the gospel, his knowledge is only going to drive him further away. And so Paul says it's pleased God to enter this and to, to, to come through and break through with this foolish message, this foolish gospel. And by foolish, he's, he's saying it's unexpected. It's unthinkable. It's, in fact, unbelievable to those who are only operating with worldly reason. Verse 22, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. During Jesus's ministry, you know, the Jews were pestering Jesus for a sign. They were looking for miraculous signs and even after he'd done a great many signs, they still weren't satisfied. Why didn't anything Jesus did satisfy them? What were they looking for? Well, perhaps many of them thought of Messiah as the one who would pick up where God left off with Egypt. The kind of signs they were looking for is maybe some uh, uh, plagues and fiery hailstones and, and Romans fleeing before plagues of locusts. That's what they were looking for. They wanted uh, Messiah to treat Rome the way God treated Egypt so that the people could be delivered. What they didn't understand is that they were Egypt at this time in history. J Jerusalem and Judea were, were Egypt. It was out of Judea that God was delivering his people, not out of Rome. Uh, and, and so the signs that Jesus did, they didn't quite understand. Jesus didn't satisfy them. Then when he fed the hungry and he healed the sick, and when he was crucified, they said, well, that's it. That's not the Messiah we were looking for at all. And so the Jews sought signs and Jesus never satisfied them with what he did. And the Greeks, on the other hand, were absorbed with speculation, with theory, with philosophy. Still today, name, name a famous Greek. Who are you going to name? Uh, Socrates, right? Plato, Aristotle. If you name a famous Greek, um, you're, you're going to name a philosopher. They looked on everyone else as if they were these barbarians who failed to appreciate their wisdom. 
But all of this wisdom, by the time of the first century, all of this Greek wisdom had degenerated into these endless circular arguments and had left them without any comfort, without any satisfying answers. Nevertheless, in the midst of that, in the face of that, they're so proud of their intellectual acumen that they have no place for the gospel. That's what Paul says. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but the gospel doesn't give either of them what they're looking for. The gospel gives them something else. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Christ crucified. He, he always keeps this centered. Jesus' identity continues and is distilled as the crucified one. You cannot separate the identity of Jesus from the cross. Jesus is the crucified one. And even in Paul's day, some might have tried to think of Jesus as merely a teacher. Maybe he was just this good man who got a bad rap. You know, that happens sometimes. You get mixed up in stuff beyond your control and you, and you get in trouble with the authorities and it just kind of got derailed. But, but that's just what happened. They're trying to downplay or marginalize the centrality of the crucifixion to the identity of Jesus, trying to marginalize the ugliness and the horror of the crucifixion. Because if you keep talking about Jesus and keep talking about the crucified one, you're going to be disrespected pretty quickly. You see, crucifixion is not something you talk about in polite company. Imagine sitting at a nice restaurant, the nicest restaurant you can imagine, with uh, some people you're really trying to get the attention of. Maybe some executives or some people that you want to work with or some people that, boy, I'd really love to have these rich, powerful people as friends. And you're at a nice restaurant with a, with a white tablecloth and, you know, nice silverware and, and, you know, it's just super, super nice. And you're getting along great. And then uh, your cousin Derwood from the Sticks shows up <laughs> out of nowhere and he says, hey, how you doing? You won't believe what I just saw behind the restaurant just now. There was a dead dog and there was rats eating on him. That is about the effect that talking about the cross in polite culture would have for the Greeks. That is how, 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 how nice and how polite uh, talking about crucifixion was in, in this kind of culture. That's the kind of impression you would make. Nobody's going to be taken seriously who talks that way. Nobody is going to be respected. Crucifixion was horrible. It was degrading. It was revolting. It leaves a brutal image. And to keep bringing this up every time you mention Jesus is not going to get you invited to a lot of parties. It's not going to get you access to all the right people. And so for some today, the crucifixion is a part of the message of, of the church that they would just rather go without. When, uh, when Jacob was little, uh, someone gave us a children's illustrated Bible and we were going through it and we got to the Last Supper and then we turned the page and it was the resurrection. They left the cross completely out. I assume that that is just because, you know, the most significant events in the history of the world are just too much for little minds to to, to think about or too graphic for little people. We just skipped right over the cross. And, and we tend to do that in ways I think we don't realize because it is, in fact, crucifixion is shameful. It is horrible. It is degrading. And to be honest, I, I, I think a lot of us would rather not think about it too much. But Paul doesn't let it go. He keeps putting it in front of him. He keeps reminding him of, of it. 
uh, and maybe in not a way that would have been much more respected than Cousin Derwood just now. I think that it would have been in such a way that was absolutely unthinkable and reprehensible. This crucified Christ, he admits, is a stumbling block. It's a scandal, a scandal to the Jew and a folly to the Gentile. For both of them, a crucified Messiah is unbelievable. That doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? A crucified king. That, that, that's an oxymoron. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, and we can't put it together. Verse 24, he, he continues. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So those who've submitted to the call of the gospel and those who've repented of their sins those who have turned to trust this crucified Messiah, that, that oxymoronic man, that wounded healer, that servant king, um, they who have submitted themselves to him in humility have seen the power of God and they've seen the wisdom of God. They've seen lives change. They've seen hearts change, situations transformed, new communities come into existence made up of people who find themselves in the grip of this message of the cross, who believe in the truth of the gospel despite everything else, loving the God that they have seen revealed in Jesus and paying their supreme loyalty and honor to Jesus. That is the evidence of the power and wisdom of God. In verse 25 in my Bible, where it says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men, I've got written over the F, I've got a capital F, not a lowercase F, capital F. And over weakness, I have a capital W. Uh, Jesus is the foolishness of God, capital F. Jesus is the weakness of God. Where do I get that? Well, later in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says Jesus was crucified in weakness. And in Hebrews, he writes, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Jesus is the weakness of God. In, in Jesus, God took on the weakness of humanity and foolishly submitted himself to men. Now, you know, I'm, I'm using big air quotes around that word foolishly, just like Paul is, right? When you, when you read these words, maybe you also put air quotes around them or, or um, they're not air quotes if you write them, right? They're real quotes, uh, foolishness and weakness of God. Because to think that, that uh, Paul reminds him, you know, what Jesus did, you think that was foolish? You know what? Even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God at his most foolish, at his most giving, at his most sacrificial, doing something that you would never think of, even then it's wiser than you. And you think Jesus was weak? Well, even in his weakest, he's still stronger than anything you've ever seen. In, in this argument, Paul is just pulling down any confidence they may have in the value of worldly wisdom. And then he shifts gears and he reminds them of their own experience. Verse 26, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He says, look around the congregation on the Lord's day. Not many of you are beautiful people. I'm talking about the Corinthians. You are all beautiful. You are all gorgeous and amazing. But these Corinthians, he says, not many of you are beautiful people. Not many of you are powerful or of noble birth. Some are, but not many. 
the gospel had made the most progress among the nobodies. The gospel makes the most progress among those who don't have any clout or any wealth. There was a pagan in the third century named Celsus who criticized the church for this very reason. He, he wrote this. This is from the third century of Greek. He says about the church, he's writing about the church. He says, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and children. That was the criticism of a Greek philosopher, a Greek writer. And to him, I say, amen, man. Yeah. And we're so stupid, we'd even take you if you just repent. If you just confess Jesus, we'd take you too. We take all idiots. Come on over. But that was their criticism, and that's firsthand testimony of how the Greeks were so condescending to the church. And imagine living in this culture where that's what you hear all the time, that everybody is so condescending to the church for the way that she's not composed of the rich and the famous and those with influence. And Paul reminds them, look, brothers and sisters, this is not something to be ashamed of. This is something to glory in. What is God's purpose, after all, of choosing the lowly and common man? Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the, the, the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not, the things that are worthless, to bring to nothing the things that are, are that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's, there's a purpose there that God uses the weakest, the smallest. Um, Paul is reminding them of something God told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, God told the people back there, he says, you know, I've called you, I've chosen you, not because you're anything special, not because you're the most holy people, not because you're the most obedient people. I mean, look around, you know that. You're not the most obedient people. I didn't call you because you were the strongest people. You were chosen to be, be my people, not because you're any of those things. You're called to love and serve Yahweh because you're thankful for what God has done for you, namely, that God has delivered you from death and bondage in Egypt. God has called you because you're the weakest, because you're the smallest, because you need me. That's why God has called you. And Paul wants the Corinthians to think of themselves as God's new called out people, his new nation that's being delivered out of bondage with the same appreciation and knowledge of God's grace. It's, it isn't because there's something that God has called them, but it's because they're nothing that God has called them. And because they're nothing, now nobody has any cause to boast. <coughs> God's purpose is to destroy every shred of human pretense of merit before God. Every human idea that we have something that we bring to God, something that places God in our debt is destroyed. He puts our pride to death. What do we have to brag about? What do we have to posture about? Where is our wisdom? What monument can we erect to our own power and might? Verse 30, but of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Don't glory in anything else. <coughs> 
So Paul undermines the world's wisdom and he said, God is repl- his, his foolishness has actually brought you real wisdom. His weakness has really brought you strength and glory. Uh, and, then, and then he reminds them of their own salvation and he helps them recall his time with them. And we're going to read just five verses of chapter two and we'll stop there. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come as a highly skilled, slick, charismatic orator. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. I had just been beaten up in every city I went to before I got to you. And I was, I was used up. I was feeling anything but confident and powerful on my own. And he says, yet look at what God did through my efforts. Again, he contrasts lofty speech with the message of Jesus crucified in verse two. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of Christ. What he's saying there, he's not saying I only talked about the cross. I didn't talk about the resurrection. I didn't talk about the miracles. That's not what he's saying. But he's placing proper emphasis on the crucifixion. And he's making sure that everybody realizes that this wasn't a crowd pleasing entertainment stunt. And the fact that it worked, that Paul came there in weakness and it worked and there was a church formed around this message can only be credited to the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Nobody in Corinth or anywhere else would ever think of looking for the secret of life, the secret to the universe, beauty, love, and death. Nobody would think about looking for the answers to all of our questions in a place of execution outside of a rebellious city in the middle East. It's, it's impossible to think that that message of what happened on the cross would ever get anywhere with anybody, that it would ever get any traction anywhere, much less among the pompous, philosophical, rational Greeks. And yet, amazingly, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he did. Now, now imagine Paul standing to teach in the synagogue and in the gathering places of the city of Corinth. And he gets there, as he says, in weakness, in fear and trembling. And he's stammering out some words about a strange thing that happened a few years ago, which sounds crazy, but which just happens to carry the answers to everything. It contains the secret to everything. And as, as Paul talks about this, you know that some were scoffing in incredulity. Some people would laugh out loud and mock him and catcall him. You would see some people disgusted and insulted and shaking their heads. You would see some people, however, believe. There was power in the weakness of Paul's message. And he says, I would never have it any other way. It's no good having lofty oratory skills with a message that's empty. I'd rather look like a fool in all my weakness and all my trembling, look like a fool while announcing the truest truth that man has ever heard. And that's, that's his message there. Well, what, what can we gain from Paul's instruction? Very uh, uh, quickly, three, three things. First of all, uh, this is what we can pull from here. That one, God uses and values the weak things and the small things, and he accomplishes great things 
with little things. He does amazing things. God does incredible things with his foolishness, with his weakness. So that means you and I can't despise small, underfunded, understaffed efforts and become all starry-eyed and worship big things. God is not enamored with statues and trophies and monuments and massive buildings of steel and glass. You think the Washington Monument looks big to God? God can point to Mount Everest and say, yeah, I did that. And that's not even the biggest thing I ever made. I mean, look at Jupiter. Get back to me when you can make something like Jupiter, right? God isn't enamored with those things. And so if he chooses, he can change the whole world out of small things and using little things. He can change the whole world through what happens in a school auditorium or a storefront meeting place or a catacomb or an empty tomb or a virgin's womb. He, he does amazing things in unexpected places using unexpected means. Um, that's, that's the first thing that we can pull out. Secondly, building on that, you and I must maintain our trust in the power of the message of the cross, even in its simplicity. There's this temptation to shroud the message of the cross in pageantry, whether rock bands or, or by you know, big productions, you know, clowns, puppets, guys on bicycles, unicycles, juggling. At the root of it, I feel that um, there's this fundamental distrust in the gospel itself. You think, boy, we've got to sweeten the pot a little bit more. Isn't there something else that we can do to really fire people up and convict them and maybe even trick them into believing if we have to? And we say, no, no, that's not what it's about. What do, what do we do? We say, go live, work hard, worship, be faithful in your homes, husbands and wives and children, be faithful to each other, do your jobs, talk to people about your faith, talk about the crucified Messiah every chance you get and build relationships with your neighbors, be good neighbors, look out for each other, follow Jesus. And what happens? What happens when we just live weak, foolish, in terms of the world, stable, normal lives. God changes the world. The world is transformed. God has called us, all of us, these very ordinary people without much influence in the world, without a lot of money to live out the gospel. And that is the power of God. That is the strength of God. That is the wisdom of God. And don't ever, don't ever undermine it or, or doubt the strength of the message of the cross in that. And thirdly, there's a warning here for us to never exchange the message of the cross for worldly wisdom in anything. And this can be so hard to discern when this is happening, when there's, there's, so, much, there's so much good sounding advice in the world, there's so many books and so many self-appointed authorities. It can be difficult to tell what is good counsel, what is, what is gospel-based counsel, what is gospel-oriented, and what is the false wisdom of the world. And we have to be good at sniffing that out, and we have to be good at telling it and knowing, oh yeah, that's dangerous, that's poison, that's to toxic. There are a few red flags. Worldly wisdom is self-centered, it's self-focused. It doesn't require a lot of sacrifice for others. Worldly wisdom promises quick solutions. It's full of shortcuts. In all of its desire for personal glory, worldly wisdom despises small things. It despises small efforts. It ignores the roles of prayer, the role of the spirit, of faith, of the church, of the body of Christ. It thinks only in terms of problem 
and solution, diagnosis and remedy with a view to what is the most expedient and efficient path to comfort. What will spare you from pain or relieve you from discomfort rather than asking what is holy, what is right, what pleases God. With worldly wisdom, the ultimate questions it's asked go only so far as to what will make me rich, healthy, powerful, popular, comfortable, instead of what is going to bring the most glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his bride, the church. Um, worldly wisdom is very concerned about respectability. And uh, this has seeped into the church more than, uh, more than any, any bold declaration of worldly wisdom, but this, 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 um, this desire for uh, respectability in such a way that when, when we get asked, you know, do, do you really believe there was a historical Adam? You know, you'll, you'll see professors, seminary professors and pastors and, and theologians, they get this real furrowed look on their brow. So they just, they wrinkle their brow and they kind of say, well, well, I'm, I'm just wrestling with that. And they do this hand motion. You can do this. I'm, we can all do this together. I'm wrestling with that. I'm wrestling. Do you believe that uh, the, the accounts of scripture are reliable and faithful and we can trust them? Is there authority in the Bible? I said, well, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with it. Because we don't want to be these crazy barefoot fundamentalists who say, yeah, I believe the Bible, every word of it. I mean, that, that seems somehow um, disrespectable and, and, and without any, any merit or honor in our modern world. We think, oh, we don't, we don't want to lose that, that status. We don't want to be so bold as to say, yeah, I trust it. I trust every bit of it. I trust it from creation to redemption to resurrection, from the virgin womb to the empty tomb, every bit of it. I trust completely with my life. I'm all in on every word that God has breathed. We don't want to be confident because we want to come off as these academics who say, well, there's this, and maybe there's this, and there's this other thing rather than having boldness. But the gospel, the man crucified, calls for you to have such boldness. And with that, students, these students we prayed for today, when you go face a worldly professors and you walk into classrooms where uh, people hate your faith, there's going to be this pull. There's going to be this draw toward respectability. I don't want to look like a hick. I don't want to look like some crazy fundamentalist. So I'm going to say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of working through that. I don't know. Be confident. And the best way to fight it, as I've tried to teach my kids, is to just have a belly laugh ready for when they say something that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, why don't you think that, you know, a, a transgender dolphin can be president of the United States? I mean, what, what I don't know. <laughs> Just laugh at the ridiculousness. The world is 700 trillion years old. <laughs> That's hilarious. We laugh at these things because it is real foolishness. It is real stupidity. We have to learn to be very sensitive to the stench of worldly wisdom and recognize that it and all who are following it are under judgment. The, the perspective that the worldly wise have is false. However compelling their philosophy of life may be to them, it isn't reality. The message of the cross is true. There is a big difference. The word of the cross, as Paul puts it, has never been popular. The word of the cross has always sucked the pride out of us. It offers a different salvation from what we would expect or desire. But people of God, do not sell out 
on Jesus. Don't give up on the cross for another more popular, culturally acceptable message because the message of the cross is the only one that can save you. It is the only one that gives you forgiveness from your sins. It is the only one that gives you eternal life. There is no other way. Never be ashamed of the foolishness of God. Never be ashamed of the weakness of God because that is to be ashamed of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on our behalf. Thank you for this message of the cross. Father, continue to grow us and mature us in such a way that we can sniff out false messages and false gospels and false, the, the, the lies of the world and the lies of the flesh and the lies of the devil. Help us to be better at sniffing those out and knowing them when we see them so that we can cling more and more to the cross, that we can divorce ourselves from the wisdom of the world and cling to Jesus. Father, strengthen us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.